Father, what an amazing privilege that we have to come and to open your revealed word to us. It's a great privilege, Father, for us corporately to meet, to come and to study, to have your spirit sort of work through us, for it is your desire for us to become like your son, and it is through the power of the spirit that he accomplishes those things. And Father, we come to a very special passage this morning that we need to really understand. And so we ask for the Spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and the ability to be able to implement things in our life so that we can please you with everything that we say and do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open it up to Genesis chapter 45. And so we're going to be picking up on what we sort of talked about last time. So when you generally have a part two, this really um, piggybacks off everything that we said last week. But as you turn to Genesis chapter 45, when you think about a Christian, certain characteristics should automatically come into your mind. Certain characteristics like people who are loving, people who are kind, gentle, truthful, integrity, forgiving. When one looks at the church, they should see that there are people within the church who love, people who know the truth, people who are kind, those who encourage, people who go the extra mile, people who come alongside those who are hurting. People who forgive. Those are qualities really and more which help define who we are and how we are to act. But I think the first one really stands out. The first one that I mentioned was love. Because our Lord gives us a picture of those who are to follow Him. They're supposed to be characterized by love. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he says this to his disciples, I give you um, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The hallmark, the characteristic the, um, the identification for believers, they are to be loving people. And implied within this concept of loving one another is the aspect for God's people to be forgivers, to be forgiving people. Because if you hold unforgiveness, you cannot properly love someone else. And so if the world is looking at, at God's people and they're to see love implied within that, they are to be forgiving people people. We can never love one another without forgiving. And as we return back to Genesis chapter 45, I believe that we have the second most beautiful picture in all of Scripture concerning forgiveness. The first one would, would be our Lord and His events at the cross. But the second one would be found here within this one chapter. Because one of the key characteristics to be found in all of God's people is one who forgives. Sadly, though, there are many times the church is a far cry of people who are forgivers. 
How often does the world look at the church and see that the church is fractured, embittered, holding grudges, selfish and cold and unforgiving? You don't have to be around in the church for a while or visit a number of churches where some of those things stands out. There are many people who are sort of dissatisfied and they make their displeasure known by sitting in the back row and sulking and souring. Not that those here today are, are sitting and sulking and souring, but there are those who, who actually do. At the heart of their discontentment is the attitude of unforgiveness. And so I am certain that at some point within all of our lives, there is an aspect of unforgiveness that can creep up within a person's heart. And I'm certain that this morning, this, this message may be uncomfortable for many because an unforgiving heart has to be there within the body of Christ because we continue to sin. We continue to let others down. We continue to not do things rightly. And so whether it, uh, things has happened in the past or may happen today or maybe in the future, we need to properly deal with an unforgiving heart in the right way so it doesn't affect how the body functions. Because the body is to be united, is to be the, the joy of a believer's heart. And so for many within the church, there are those here who continually have an attitude of unforgiveness. Though I'm still sort of the new guy, newish, I'm not sort of talking to anyone in general, it's just out there. I've seen it. I've been to a lot of churches, and there are attitudes of unforgiveness in many places. For there are those who bear a grudge against their parents, which they had things that had happened from their youth. There are those who have issues with their siblings, and they hold on to things, and they have an attitude of unforgiveness with them. There may be even some who haven't forgive another person who aren't even alive, and they bear the bondage of that unforgiveness even to this day. And so an attitude of unforgiveness can be there. It is there. And here in Genesis chapter 45, we have this tremendous story of Joseph. And we could see that not only could he forgive, but he is able to give, forgive his brothers who have gravely wronged him. And for 22 years, he has not seen them, but yet he is able to forgive being ill-treated and being wronged is something that we all can relate to because we've all experienced it at certain points of our life, some more so than others. Because many of us has had abusive parents. Many of us have been bullied in the past. Many of us had friends to where now the friendship has been broken in one way or another. Maybe even with family members, they have mistreated us. And so we have been ill-treated at some point, and there can be lingering pain, lingering hurt. Relationships have been broken, and unless that they are dealt with with us, anger, bitterness, obstinance 
are all aspects of an unforgiving heart. Because we've been ill-treated, we've been disrespected, and we've been gravely hurt, and we want the other party who has done that to us to pay. We want them to feel the pain that we have gone through. We want them to crawl back on their hands and knees to ask for forgiveness and say that they're sorry for what they have done. And you want to teach them a lesson so that they will never, ever do it again. And so we make ourselves the forgiveness police and we want them to come about and act rightly. But yet dealing with unforgiveness is an essential part and a vital part of our walk with Christ. And within this chapter, we are going to see how Joseph deals with a forgiving heart, how it's going to be demonstrated. And so since chapter 43, Joseph, as we know, has been hiding his identity from his brothers, and he brings about tests for them because he needed to know in regards to his family where they were together, where they were with their walk with God. Because everything about Joseph looks like that he's an Egyptian, so much so that he speaks harshly. He speaks to them uh, very in, uh, intimidating, to where I call him the intimidator, because it marked within them an aspect of fear. And so he tests them. And in chapter 43, Joseph pledges himself to Jacob because the family was running out of food that he would put his own life on the line to be able to bring Benjamin back to Egypt and return him safely. And so now they appear before the intimidator, and Joseph, I mean, um, Judah passes all of the tests. Is Benjamin alive? He's here. He's with us. Did someone return for Simeon? Yes, um, we are here. Did, did they return the money? We, we, we brought money, and we even brought more money back. Have they earned Jacob's trust? Yes, Judah offered his own life. And his father trusts him. Have they earned Benjamin's trust? Yes, Benjamin trusts Judah that he will carry out what he had done. And so Joseph sees in Judah's life that he's not any longer characterized by the sins of his past. Something radically had taken place. That he is not the same. He sees that God has gotten hold of his heart, and he's no longer the same self-centered scoundrel as what he used to be. He's learned to love his brothers because he is fully committed and sacrificed himself for the sake of Benjamin and his other brothers, and so they could return back to their homeland. And so the hound of heaven has been working within their hearts and Judah steps forward as now the premier spokesman for the family, the unifier of the family. And then in chapter 44, Joseph gives that last test to where a cup, a silver cup is planted in Benjamin's backpack to where he is about to be imprisoned for a crime. And Judah steps forward and um, personifies the test he offers himself to be Benjamin's substitute, where he volunteers to the man to take his punishment so Benjamin could return home and not have his father die. 
So Benjamin is essentially saying, take me instead. And so he puts his life on the line. And so that was what we said last time, the background of chapter 45. And we saw last time that this is a chapter of revealing to where Joseph reveals many different things throughout these pages. In the first three verses, we see Joseph reveals his identity. It's a great emotional explosion, if you would, of not only Joseph's love that he has for his brothers, but his yearning to set things right with his brothers. Look at the first three verses. And Joseph could not control himself before all those who had stood by him, and he cried out, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer, for they were dismayed at his presence. Literally, we said last time, his brothers were speechless. They were dismayed. That word dismayed um, in the Hebrew means to disturb, to alarm, to terrify, to be disturbed, to be anxious, to be hurried, to be nervous. And normally the context sort of dictates which one of those um, takes place. But I said last time in Tim's own rule of grammar, they all fit in this situation. Why? Because in a moment of a few seconds, they went from being disturbed by the man to being bewildered. Who? This, this is Joseph? To amazement of how didn't I see that before to euphoria. Joseph, he's alive. To he's going to kill us. To utter terror all in a matter of a few seconds. Because when they realized that he was Joseph, they expected Joseph to execute them for the crimes that they had done. Because they knew God was paying them back for what they had done. And then in verses 4 through 8, Joseph reveals his theology. He is going to lay down to his brothers why he is acting the way that he is and he will. And for the past 22 years, it was Joseph and his God, for God was with Joseph. And he tells them, it wasn't you who put me into um, slavery. God was in it all. And then in verses 9 through 15, we see Joseph has a plan, and he's going to reveal this plan. Joseph had thought through all of the details for his family, and he tells them, hurry, I want you to go to Father and bring him back. This is where you're going to live. I'm going to provide everything that you will ever need. And so he reveals the plan. And then in verses 6, 16 through 20, we see that God is also working to reveal the relationship that Joseph has with Pharaoh. God was at work because Joseph had, um, was in favor with everything that he had done and so much so that Pharaoh is going to pay for new clothes, provisions, use the Pharaoh's wagons and chariots and anything that were needed to bring his family back. And then in, we saw last time in verses 21 through 28, J, uh, Joseph's brothers revealed the truth to Jacob. 
they return, they tell Jacob the story. Now, we don't know how much detail we're not told here, but we know by, by chapter 50, Jacob knows all of the truth, that it, it was them. They were guilty. They put on that big charade of, you know, the blood on, on the palm-length co- uh, coat and how they deceived their father through the entire time. And so Jacob knows the truth. And then we came to last time when we ran out of time because there's only so much that you can cover in one sitting, is that um, there's one last one. There's a sixth element that we're going to be looking at today. Joseph is going to be revealing the fruit of forgiveness. Because as you sort of go through this one um, passage, the question in, in our minds should be, how could Joseph with all of the things that the brothers had done to him, how could he act this way? How could he come across with an attitude of forgiveness by, uh, by them sending him to, into slavery, cutting him off from God's covenant people, being all by himself? How is he able to do this? And that's what we're going to be looking at today, to get an understanding on how Joseph implemented into his life a heart of forgiveness. And so to understand forgiveness and how how he's capable and able to forgive his brothers, we first need to understand forgiveness, a true biblical forgiveness, because our society has a general understanding of what forgiveness is, but we need to define things. Because to understand a concept, we need to correctly define what the term is. And so uh, forgiveness at its heart means to cancel or to eliminate a debt owed. That's what the word means, to cancel or to eliminate a debt owed. And the classic illustration, if you would, I got my, got my iPhone, and you asked to borrow my phone, and I give it to you, and you go off and you have your phone call, but a few moments later, you sort of bring it back, and the phone's in pieces, lots of pieces, not just a cracked screen, but it's, it's, it's pieces. And so, you have the obligation now to replace my, my phone because you were using it and you broke it. And so forgive, um, forgiveness is me telling you, don't worry about it. It's okay. I'll just get another phone. That's, that's sort of nice because it is an iPhone. It's a big iPhone, but it's an iPhone 6. It doesn't cost that much. But if it did... That's, that's still the same. And so don't worry about it. I'm going to cancel the debt that you owe to me to replace my phone because you, you were using it and you broke it and you don't have to buy me another phone. I have forgiven the debt. I have canceled it out. And so that is what true forgiveness is. It's eliminating the debt that is owed. And so we tend to state that we forgive someone when they have wronged us, but yet we inwardly, we act like they still have to pay for what they've done. We say many times we forgive a person, but we act differently. And that's not true forgiveness. Forgiveness is that the debt is canceled. 
It's gone. And so that's the meaning of the word. But yet to have a further understanding of forgiveness, you have to begin to understand the difference between a horizontal forgiveness and a vertical forgiveness. Because we, we look at our relationships that we have between one another a, on a vertical plane. What you do to me and, and what I do to you, that's on a vertical. But you don't start there. That's not where you begin to understand forgiveness. Because to properly understand forgiveness, you have to understand our, ver, our horizontal forgiveness that we have with God. And once you understand that, because our horizontal understanding with God defines what our vertical understanding of forgiveness is all about. And so when you don't properly understand forgiveness with our relationship with God horizontally, it will give us a faulty understanding and a faulty practice about forgiveness with one another. And so if we don't have a right perspective of our relationship with God being forgiven when we come to Christ, it will not only affect our walk with God, but it also skews our understanding of the gospel and how God has forgiven the sinner. And so in a few moments, I, I want you to think about horizontal forgiveness. And to understand our horizontal forgiveness that we have with God, we need to understand our sin and our guilt. Because on one side, within us, there is a sense of right and wrong. And so we know the difference between right and wrong. That's why we yearn for justice when we've been wronged. We yearn for fairness when things don't go right. And parents see this all the time with their children. Because if you have children and they don't get the, the uh, same number of cookies, guess what? They want fairness. It, that's not fair. And, and children want fairness. So the father comes and he sees one has four cookies and the other two has three cookies. He takes the one cookie and eats it himself and goes away and now everything's fair. It's, it's all fair. They thought they were going to get more cookie, but they're wrong. Fathers like cookies too. And so we're looking for fairness. We're looking for justice within us. And so when we are wronged by someone, we still want inside justice. They've wronged me. They've hurt me. I want things to be made right, and I want them to fully understand the pain that I'm going through for being wronged. And yet there's another side of things. Not only do we want fairness, but there's another side to where we begin to excuse our own sin, our own guilt. There's a faulty me mechanism to where we tend to excuse our sin. And so our, our society sort of helps feed this aspect to where we begin to just blame others for the actions that we do. And we have an attitude, you sin because you're evil. You do wrong. When I sin, you just don't understand my motives. And so we, we um, explain our actions away. And you see this every day at, down at the courthouse to where the person in front of the judge is asked, did you hit the old lady and take her purse? I was raised in three foster homes. 
Did you hit the old lady and take her purse? I, I came from a poor family. Did you take the old lady and take her purse? Well, you know, I didn't have a father. Did you take the old lady and, hit her, um, and take her purse? Well, you know I'm on drugs. There's excuses and excuses. Never, yeah, I did it, I'm guilty. There's excuses because you don't really understand the motives that I have. Because we, we tend to look at, at, at our own misfortune as being victims of circumstances. And yet when we look at others who have wronged us, who have hurt us, they're guilty in our eyes and they need to pay for it. So it's a dichotomy that works within us because we don't see a proper understanding, first of all, with our relationship with God. We don't see our own guilt as God sees our sin and sees our guilt. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person stands guilty in God's sight because the wages of sin or the payment of sin that we do is death. And so we try to excuse our sin, but God sees us as guilty. And there's nothing that we can do to lessen that guilt before God, who is fair and he is just, and he must judge us of our sins. But the issue is we don't see ourselves as that bad. I'm not that bad. I'm not like Hitler. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not like a mass murderer. I'm not like those guys. Hell is hot for those guys, but I'm, I'm not like them. Because before coming to Christ, we believe that God grades, grades on a curve because we excuse our sin and we see ourselves as not that bad. But we don't see God in the proper light, that he is just, he is holy, he never sins. And for him to being a just God, he has to judge every sin. And we don't see the enormity of our sin because we don't, see, we don't understand that in thought, in word, and in deed, we have offended a holy God and deserve to be consumed with an eternal fire. And so the enormity of our sin is huge because God is holy and it takes an eternity of judgment to pay for the sins that we commit. But when we see our sin properly, we see that on our own we do stand guilty before God. And it's through Christ and him dying on the cross who is our provision because he has completely eliminated and canceled our debt. In Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, we read this, that when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death, of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. To us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What a tremendous verse! 
We were spiritually dead, separated from God. It, um, we did things that, that were against us. They were hostile to us. They are transgressions. We have transgressed a holy God. But because of what Christ had done, he has made us alive. We have been forgiven. That debt is canceled out, taken out of the way because he paid for our sin on the cross. And so we can stand before God completely forgiven. And so for us to understand horizontal forgiveness, the forgiveness that we're to have to one another, we have to fully understand our forgiveness that we have in Christ before God, that our sins are completely forgiven, the past ones, the present ones, and the future ones. And so we're, we are guilty. We are condemned. But praise be to God that Christ died for us. Amen? That is what Christ had done on the cross for us, for all those who repent of their sins and to um, trust in, in Christ's sacrifice. And so we can have a right standing before God, not because of anything we have done, because we could do a lot. I've forgiven you. Huh, that makes me pretty good, better than you. Puh. No, I can't do anything. I don't deserve anything. But it's because of what Christ had properly done. And so once you understand the horizontal forgiveness that God has given to us as a sinner to where we stand forgiven, we can now stand in the light that because he has forgiven me, I can now horizontally forgive you, another person, a family member, a parent, anyone who has done me wrong who has sinned against me. And so that's where our understanding of true forgiveness is. Because Paul tells us in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, he gives us a grocery list, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and uh, slander be put away from you along with malice, but be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. We see that horizontal and vertical forgiveness being laid out there. We can forgive because God has forgiven us. Now, how is unforgiveness made demonstrated in the life of a person? Because we can be unforgiving in a lot of ways, sometimes very aggressively and sometimes very passively. Vodibachum really helps here and by stating that there are a number of ways in which we demonstrate unforgiveness and how we punish each other in subtle ways to help bring about a satisfaction with us. And there are five, at least five ways that I just want to bring about to your attention this morning. The first one is we demonstrate unforgiveness by withholding our time, our affection, and our attention. By withholding to a person who has offended us our time, our affection, our attention. To where we tell the other person, I choose not to see you at this time. I'm busy right now to see you. 
You can see me, but I want you to see the hardness and coldness on my face. They choose to withhold special time, affection, or attention. And so when we begin to deprive a person of those things, we show a heart of unforgiveness. But yet there's a second way. We demonstrate our unforgiveness by demonstrating, by depriving a person of honor and respect. We can show people that we're, we have a heart of unforgiveness because I'm going to withhold to you the honor and respect that you deserve. And you see this all the time with children who have left their home. Because they get older, they leave the home, and they tell people, you know what, my parents weren't exactly great parents. They, they just didn't raise me correctly. And you hear this time and time and time again. But there's, there's one thing that children who leave the house need to be reminded of is that every home is a dysfunctional home. Every family is a dysfunctional family. Why? Because we all sin. The best of Christian families is a dysfunctional family. Why? Because there is sin there. And there was only one family that was not dysfunctional, and they created dysfunction. That was the first couple. They, they sinned, and it was downhill after that. And so there are no perfect parents. Parents are trying to parent their kids usually the best way they can because there's no real handbook on parenting. You can buy a lot of books, but sometimes they're, real, they're, they're no help. But children can hang on to things and to say, I am not going to forgive them for what they have done. And so they deprive their parents of honor and respect. I'm not going to send you a card on your birthday. I'm not going to call you on the phone. I'm not going to bring the grandkids over because I'm not happy. And so this unforgiveness, it deprives a person of the honor and respect that they should have. But there's a second reason. We demonstrate unforgiveness by depriving a person what is due them. Sometimes parents can do this. They don't get happy with their kids for whatever reason. I'm going to change my inheritance. I'm going to give you a dollar so you can't contest the will and give, give everything else to the other kids. It shows up all the time how parents can, can hang on. And so they deprive a person of what is due. There's a fourth one. We demonstrate unforgiveness by refusing to acknowledge one's accomplishments, achievements, or special occasions. And so I'm not going to attend certain, certain things because I want you to feel the pain of my absence. I'm not going to do it. Fifthly, we demonstrate our unforgiveness by rejoicing in the sufferings of another. Bad things will happen to a person, and instead of being sad for them, we're glad. I'm glad they're getting their just desserts because of what they have done for me. And so those are just a few ways how we begin to show our unforgiveness to others for past issues. It can affect anyone in any home, 
even the best of Christian homes, we can hang on to things from the past, from family relatives, from uh, siblings, to um, people that we work with, to people within the church. It can happen all the time. I've seen it. I've seen people hold on to grudges because they weren't consulted what color the rug was supposed to be. Whatever. Uh, and they hold on to it for a long time. And so when something happens within the church, they get upset and they, start, they stop coming for a while because I'm going to show them of my absence. They stop giving. I'm going to stop giving to God and it's going to hurt them in their pocketbook in the long run. And so we show our unforgiveness in harsh in cruel, in ugly ways, because unforgiveness does not belong anywhere in a, in a believer's life. And so there's some key essentials as we begin to sort of um, get back to our, our chapter that we need to keep in mind about forgiveness. Three things that, that, I, that I just want to point out as we come to our passage. First of all, the aspect of forgiveness is a command. We are commanded by God to forgive. Colossians 3.13, Paul writes, Bear one another, forgiving one another, whoever has a complaint against you just as the Lord forgave you. So in the believer's life, it's a command. It's not an option. I, I just don't feel like doing it today. I'm going to hold on to my... Uh, to my pain because I just enjoy wallowing in it. I'm mad. No, it's a command. We're commanded to forgive. It's not a choice. It's um, this aspect of forgiveness. Secondly, it's never to end. We're always to forgive. In Matthew chapter 18, our Lord tells a story to where they, um, the disciples ask the questions. How often are we to forgive? Seven times? He says, no, 70 times 7. Not that he's giving out an equation for 490 times, and then on the 491st time, we stop forgiving. It's ongoing. It's never-ending. And so our forgiveness is, is always on display. And then, thirdly, it's to be immediately dealt with. In Mark chapter 11, verse 25, we, we find that even when you're praying, you're worshiping and praying God, and you realize that, that you have something against someone, forgive. It's immediate. You don't put it off. So it's a command, it's often, and it's immediate. It doesn't linger, this unforgiveness. Because if we don't forgive, Certain results happens in a believer's life that I want you to note. First of all, when we don't forgive, we are the ones who are in sin. If our Lord commanded us to forgive and we don't, whatever they have done, even though you feel like you're completely and utterly justified, let me tell you what they have done and you will agree with me. No. We're commanded to forgive. And when we don't forgive, it's us that is the one who is in sin at that point. If we don't, un uh, if we don't 
practice unforgiveness. Number two, it makes you a hypocrite. And we hate being called a hypocrite. But in reality, it does. Why? Because you are saying to the other person, especially if they're a believer, that Christ died on the cross for my sin. Christ died on the cross for their sin. I can stand fully forgiven before God. The Father is satisfied that both mine and and their debt has been paid. But for me, that's not enough. It makes us a hypocrite. Why? I'm forgiven, but I don't want to forgive you. Hypocrite. And so we see that also in uh, Matthew chapter 18, where our Lord has this great illustration about a man who owes an astronomical sum of money, 10,000 talents, and he pleads to the king, I can't pay, can you forgive me? And he gets forgiven. And then he immediately goes out and he finds someone who owes him just a small amount of money who can't pay, and he throws him into prison. And then when the king finds out, he releases the other person and throws him into prison because he's a hypocrite. I forgave you an astronomical amount, but you can't forgive someone else? It makes us a hypocrite. Thirdly, when we don't forgive, we dishonor the body. When believers do not forgive, we dishonor the body of Christ. Because one of the things that's made clear in the New Testament is the unity and preservation of of the church, of God's people. And so many times we, we sort of come to the church and when something bad happens, I'm gone. I'm I'm out of here because they've done whatever to me. And I want them to pay. How could God's people do that to me? Well, we're still to forgive. If God has called us to a place, we're we're at this place. That's what God wants us to do. Because we will sin. I will let you down in some way. I will. Why? Because I sin every moment of every day. I try not to. I'm broken when I do. And I, it's my desire to glorify Christ in all the words and deeds and actions that I do, but I, I will let you down. And there are some people, when they get let down, they will hang on to that for years. And so we dishonor the body of Christ. We hinder the moving of the Spirit because unforgiveness should, be, should not be a part of the body. It's not who we are. We're to be loving and to demonstrate that loving implied in that is unforgiveness because we forget that when we were most unlovable before a holy God, he loved us. Even when I still choose to sin today, he continues to love us. So what does true forgiveness look like? We saw how unforgiveness is made manifested. Let's look at Joseph's life on how we get to see the fruit of unforgiveness. Well, the first one happened back in chapter 41. You don't have to turn there. But when he has children, 
Pharaoh gives him a wife. He has two boys. One of his boys is named Manasseh. And the Hebrew word for Manasseh is that God has made me forget all my trouble. All of that pain, all of that rejection, God removed it and he made me forget. So he is able to forgive. That's why when we get to chapter 45, he has these emotions that erupt. Why? Because he loves his brother despite of what they have done for us. And so um, look, look at verses 4 and 5. And Joseph said to his brother, we find this second aspect that we looked at last time. He says, please come closer to me. And they came closer. We said last time that that was a statement of invitation. I want you closer to me. Come. He didn't say, you know, he didn't command them, come forth. Be there. I'm going to tell you what I think. He wants them to come closer to his personal space because he wants them close. And so when you have unforgiveness, you're not holding on to the junk, you accept them when they come into your, your presence. But yet there's a third aspect. Joseph, throughout his actions, will show kindness to his brothers. It's not like that he forgot them, because we're, we're going to see in a moment, he says, this is what you've done, but God has done this. But I want you to look at Genesis chapter 50 for a moment. Because Jacob has just died. And the brothers are thinking, Joseph, because father is now dead, is going to pay back us because father's dead. <laughs> and he won't get yelled at. But look at verse 15. And when Joseph's brothers saw that the father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we have done? So they acknowledge their guilt. Verse 16, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged you, your father pledged that before he dies that you won't get even with them. Verse 17, thus you say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers. So Jacob is going to be fully aware of the situation and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept as they spoke. Why would you question my forgiveness? And look at verse 18. And then his brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. And this is the final fulfillment of Joseph's two dreams, where they fall down before him. And, his, and then in verse 19, But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for, I, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I'm not going to re retaliate. I will provide for you and your little ones, your family. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Forgiveness is on display. He spoke kindly. He didn't go back to the past. He went 
to his forgiveness. And he comforted them because God was in it all. And so we see the reality of Joseph's forgiveness by providing, preserving, comforting, and speaking kindly towards his brothers. And it's funny because we're not told how the brothers reacted to such actions. But imagine yourself, because of the sins that you have done, receiving this kind of forgiveness. This forgiveness being um, demonstrated back to them of God's graciousness and mercy being made out towards them from Joseph. This is exactly what God does in Christ to those who are his. Because we've grievously sinned against God and stand guilty, he forgives us. He desires us to come close to him and calls us his own. And so that is a picture of true forgiveness because it makes us able to do to others what God has done to us. We are capable and we are able to forgive because we stand forgiven. And so we see Joseph's uh, understanding and ability to express forgiveness in in a couple of ways. Some of this overlaps last week, but I got to bring it back. First of all, for us to be able to demonstrate forgiveness, we need to understand the sovereignty of God. Because we need to see that even in the most despicable situation, God is at work. And so if you look at verse 5 of chapter 45, God has sent me. In verse 7, God has sent me. In verse 8, it wasn't you who sent me, but it was God. He made me father to the Pharaoh. And then in verse 9, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. We cannot properly forgive unless we truly understand the sovereignty of God. God was at work through all the pain that Joseph had to experience. He was there. God was sovereign. That's why in Psalm 103, in verse 19, uh, it's a great verse on the sovereignty of God. It says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. He's able to raise up nations. He takes nations down. And even in our relationship that we have to the people around us, God is in control. Because if you do not believe properly in the sovereignty of God, you will feel like that it is you who have to bring about fairness. It's you who have to bring about justice. That you have to be your own avenger and avenge the deeds that have been done to you. You want to balance out the scales of justice and bring the world back into balance. But we forget, God is sovereign. He's at work. But for us to forgive, there's a second thing I want you to remember, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 35. It says, Never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It's been said that unforgiveness is like drinking poison, is like you drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. It's utter, utter foolishness. 
It is God who will bring about fairness. It will, God will be the one who will avenge. But we many times cling to that unforgiveness in our heart, and it's a heavy weight to bear. It's always there. We're always reminded about it, especially during the holiday times. It's always there. The pain keeps on going because in our eyes, they haven't paid sufficiently yet, and I am not satisfied. But when you do believe in the sovereignty of God, you know that God will set things right in his own time. And so we let that burden go. We let that pain go, and we forgive But yet, thirdly, we must remember that God is using these events to change me. God brings about those hardships and um, being wronged to help work in my own life. Look at at the second part of verse 5. God sent me before you to preserve life. In verse 7, God sent me to preserve for you a remnant to keep you alive by a great salvation or deliverance. And so when Joseph was at, when he was 17 years old, he would have never volunteered to go to Egypt. But now at 40, he says, God's in it all, and Joseph would have never changed a thing. Yeah, I'd do it over again. Why? Because God was in it all. So God is at work to change me through those hard times. And fourthly, we need to remember that when we demonstrate forgiveness, God is at work in the other people when they see that forgiveness on, is on display. God is at work in others because of their unfair actions towards us. And we see that throughout, throughout this, one, this one passage. You know, don't be grieved, don't be angry with yourself. Therefore, it was not you, but it was God. The Jacob boys thought that they'd gotten rid of Joseph. They did not see that it was through their sin. The hound of heaven was at work through those events, chasing them to bring about their own salvation through the actions that they had done. And, and uh, there's, there's one last thing that I want you to look at, at Joseph's forgiveness. And it's Joseph's desire for full reconciliation. Look at verse 9. Hurry up and go to my father. And he said to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children in your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. It was his, not, it was his desire not only to see his father, but he wanted the entire family to be near him. He wanted full uh, reconciliation. And forgiveness is one thing, and reconciliation is a different thing. Forgiveness is a one-way street. Forgiveness is something that I do. Joseph didn't ask for forgiveness to his brother. He just forgave. And so I can forgive someone for what they have done, even if they 
don't even know that I was holding ill against them. And so it's a one-way street. But reconciliation, it's a two-way street. It's between you, it's between myself. And Joseph wanted his family to be near him. It's the same thing with God. Not only does he save us, but he desires to be near us. We who were once an enemy of God, hostile to him, he chose to be close to us. Because when he saved us, he didn't make us slaves and just was in his castle somewhere. But he adopted us to be sons. And so he is there to provide. There is a working relationship. But this reconciliation doesn't happen overnight. It has to be worked on. So for the spouse who has had infidelity in their marriage, the spouse can forgive, but trust isn't automatically built. It takes time. And so trust has to be earned. It has to be developed. But reconciliation can take place. When you have an abusive parent, you can forgive, but it takes time for reconciliation to take place. You forgive, but you, but you begin to mend the relationship. And so when we begin to look at forgiveness, it's a, it's a broad topic. There's so much more that I could sort of get into. But the need for it is there. Because whether or not you're here in the audience or listening to on the web, there are people who will hear this, either who have currently have a heart of unforgiveness or will at some point have a heart of unforgiveness. We will feel disrespected. We will be wronged. We will be ill-treated. But how will we handle it? But God is sovereign. Vengeance is mine. And we must realize that we can forgive and we are able to forgive because we stand forgiven. And that's where it starts. Father, I know for myself this, this was not an easy message to bring about, but it was one that I was looking forward to since chapter 37, the beginning of Joseph's life. Forgiveness is something we all need not only to understand, but to make sure that it's in constant practice. And there may be someone here, Father, who is just angry with me to the hilt because I'm pressing buttons that no one has the right to press because they are angry and they're completely justified in their anger because they were done wrong. But they feel like that they need to continually to pay. But Father, they need to realize that forgiveness begins with realizing our own sin and our own guilt, that we stand before a holy God, and when I place my faith in Christ, you forgive me completely and utterly, and I can be able to forgive and capable of forgiving because you have forgiven me. And so, Father, if there is someone here who has never turned their life to Christ, let them turn to Christ and begin to understand that forgiveness, that Christ paid the penalty on the cross for them. But yet, Father, we have a, 
variety of people here who are at different stages in their own walk with you. Many, Father, may have had traumatic events in their past. And many things, they may still be there that affects their current relationship with their spouse, their relationship with their children, their relationship with, with other family members. Many things, Father, could be just very grotesque because they have been violated by, by others. But yet, Father, we can still forgive because you have forgiven us. Let us stand in the power of forgiveness because when we don't, an unforgiving heart is heavy. It's hurtful to others. It never accomplishes anything for righteousness. But Father, when we forgive, it puts your spirit on display to convict the heart of others around us. And they can marvel. How could you forgive a person who has done that act? Well, it's because I'm able to forgive because as what Paul saw as himself, as I'm just like a chief of sinners. And Father, there may be even someone else here who has been hanging on to grudges of the past. Whether or not it was past churches or past members here or past pastors here or whatever that may be. Father, let us give up whatever ill feelings that we have and yearn for the unity of the body so that we can function together because we have a heart and demonstrate a heart of forgiveness. And so, Father, the implication and applications are really endless because we fall short every day and we can cling to and want our own justice. So, Father, as we begin to ready our heart for the table, let us, Father, examine our own hearts to see that we are not only worthy to partake today or if I need to deal with the issues in my own heart before I can partake. So thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name.